You're listening to All Things Video, a podcast dedicated to uncovering the past and charting the future of the online video ecosystem. This episode is brought to you by TubeBuddy, the complete toolkit for YouTube channel management. This power-packed browser extension helps with everything from both metadata edits and trending keyword suggestions to thumbnail optimization, fan engagement tools, and so much more. Visit TubeBuddy.com to meet your new best friend on YouTube. You're listening to All Things Video. I'm your host, James Creech, and today's guest is Bernie Sue, a Peabody and two-time Emmy award-winning storyteller and the founder of 96 Next. Bernie, welcome to the show. Thanks, James. Thanks for having me. Of course. Thanks for hosting me here at, uh, at the Bernie Cave. Do you call it that? Uh, I've never used those words, <laughs> but, but you're welcome. You're welcome. Very Th- good. Thanks for coming to me. Uh, but I thought we'd start off, you know, you and I met through the magic of the internet, mm-hmm. uh, reached out over LinkedIn, and I was fascinated because I had kind of gone back and dug up this old podcast, which was in many ways a precursor, a predecessor to all things video called New Mediocracy. Yes. So tell me a little bit about the show and your involvement with New Mediocracy. So New Mediocracy was, uh, I'm, I hope I have these facts right, <laughs> like uh, it was a podcast that was started by Steve Wolf, uh, Zadi Diaz, and one other person, I want to say Steve Garfield, but that's probably, I don't know if that's correct or not. Um, anyway, so they, th- it was just years ago, I mean, talking almost 10 years ago, probably, right? And they were doing this podcast to talk about new media, video formats, and they talked about things like Lonely Girl 15 and, and other uh, areas like that in the business. And then it kind of evolved when uh, Chris McCaleb, who was a founder of, shoot, I forgot his company, um, but Chris, who was hosting the show, uh, and uh, he started taking over the podcast as a, as a host uh, or co-host or organizer. And then when Zadi and Steve, and Steve kind of left, uh, the day to day, I volunteered to uh, to Chris and said, "Hey, if you want to, if you want me a co-host with you, I will do so." And I took my co-hosting job very seriously, and I would always uh, like really try to spur the conversation going with our guests, even sometimes when I was the guest, <laughs> uh, amongst other people, of course. But I was still like, "Hey, like, you know, like really kind of keep the conversation moving, and ideally hope it keep it keep it interesting." And then the, I don't think we've done an episode for like five years, but uh, I like to hope that. You know, you clearly listened to a couple episodes um, that it was very insightful, especially at the time. Oh yeah, it lives on, and the content uh, it held up. So very it cool to see, up. and that's Good. how I found out about you, and we got connected. So debt uh, of gratitude to the show. Uh, but I thought we'd maybe zoom back a little bit further in time and, and talk about how you got your start in digital media and entertainment in the first place. Sure. Um, so I moved to LA from the Silicon Valley, and I wanted to be a TV showrunner, like traditional TV showrunner. I wanted to like create like Mad Men or Breaking Bad or whatever you want to say. <laughs> And um, as I came here and studied TV writing, uh, you, you kind of realize very quickly that the TV writing entry point uh, method is the same it's been for 30 years. You like write specs and pilots, you hopefully get a writer assistant job, and you get an agent, and, and you kind of move the ladder of the writer's uh, hierarchy in a show. And eventually you become you know, a showrunner or whatever, you create your own shows. So that part's fine, and I'm not, I'm not knocking that. It just, it just always has been and still is that method and that process. And I also, at the time when I came here, saw the rise of things like YouTube and you know, things that kind of spurred this online video industry. And I grew up in the Bay Area. I, I worked at Google at a time. That I knew I knew enough of how the, how the internet works, I'd like to th- say, um, to kind of feel like I'm going to be able to play an advantage if I were to go online video. And online video was this untapped, like, uh, like they used the Wild West media uh, kind of analogy, but it was like, 
Wild West in the sense that it was like kind of undiscovered. Like there were a lot of things we hadn't done yet. And so it felt really exciting to me to kind of really try to push the mediums and define the mediums rather than, you know, say do another cop show <laughs> like on CBS. Nothing, nothing wrong with them. You know, uh, yeah, those, those guys are doing just fine. Uh, but I, there, there's not a need for that. I, I don't necessarily need to be the one to do another cop show. I could be the one to, to revolutionize uh, some form, versions of online video um, in, in certain ways. So that's what kind of drew me to it. And it, wasn't, uh, it was about 2010 when I started to really see traction in online video as, as a potential for a career. And then uh, 2012, a couple years later, was when I did my breakout series, notably, which was probably Lizzie Bennett Diaries, the one that most people who are listening to this and are aware of me know that, I, that um, uh, I've done. And that show, well, after that series went, it kind of you know entrenched me in as like, all right, I'm going to be in online video. And here we go. So. so you're this young kid up in the Bay Area with your Shonda Rhimes poster on the wall and your Dan <laughs> Harmon action figures dreaming of growing up and being a showrunner, and you feel this huge gravitational pull down to Los Angeles. Well, Shonda Rhimes and Dan Harmon hadn't had their careers yet at the time. <laughs> not, so. not quite. Okay, fair uh, enough. I, I think it was like, yeah, like, like uh, but yes, that's the idea. I mean, the shows that really draw me, drew me into TV were 24 and Friends. And what about those shows spoke to you? Um, Friends, because it was just so loved, I think. It was just like my generation. Uh, 24, because it was so innovative. Like it was just the format was so innovative at the time, and and I and and it was so good at just doing tension, even though some of it, a lot of it was so very fabricated. Um, it was still an amazing a thrill to watch. So the format was so innovative, and that's what kind of drew me to television, both in comedy and drama. So I was like, oh, I want to do that. <laughs> I'm curious to hear. Uh, this is a, totally an aside, but, sure. but roll with me here for a second. I, I've never seen Twenty Four, so what? this is uh, an ill-informed opinion. Go ahead. But I've I've heard that. Um, the show invented this premise of, you know, e end each episode with a cliffhanger, right? Which is now almost a formula that's baked into so many different types of shows uh, that does it become less effective at that point? I mean, I don't think, I, I really can't give that that show the credit of inventing cliffhangers. I just, there's no way. <laughs> no way that show has the credit. The, what that show really innovated was the format of storytelling, which is all real time. And, and the split screen dynamic of like, you're seeing this person right now at the same time this is happening this is happening over here and you flew over here. That's what it really innovated. But 24 did have really good cliffhangers. And so maybe it was the elevation of those cliffhangers that, that really, really shot it forward. Um, and they also did a really good job of cliffhanging into the, the even the, the commercial breaks with their like the famous ticking clock thing uh, that, that, that they had. So I, I just found it just thrilling. It was just a thrilling series. And, and I feel that shows... Um, that when I play in that that thriller space, that kind of psychodrama space, I really try to write like crazy cliffhangers because I was inspired by by that. And and the shows like that, like, like Prison Break was another one that that you know these two shows, both Fox shows, ironically, um, but they both at times when you kind of like nothing is really happening, but that's so tense for some reason they amp the drama up of like Prison Break was the classic was like oh my god they're gonna get discovered that they're breaking out of prison right. And it was just all these kind of fabricated, like, you know, <laughs> things that that felt a little just like out of the blue. But you, you kind of bought them <laughs> like, like, oh, my God, there's a guard right there and they're just barely about to be caught and they're not. And, 
and of course they're not caught and they, <laughs> they keep going but that was the, that was the fun part of it that's what that was the fun part of that, that storytelling yeah very cool so so you moved down to LA yep and uh, how did you decide okay well you know I'm gonna start creating uh, this new show right I've got this idea for Lizzie Bennett Diaries where did the inspiration come from and how did you piece everything together sure um well so Lizzie Bennett Diaries I'd, I'd it was actually playing my third or fourth actual show but that was the most notable one of the ones so kind of like when you're at that point where you're you've just like you're here and you're not discovered like you're you're kind of a another creator right I mean, I'm not saying that's bad I'm just saying like you're not you're not known for anything yet at the time so that's a really tricky thing because like how do you get discovered it's a very catch 22 chicken and egg type thing it's kind of the question like a lot of creators or writers have it's like I want to get an agent okay well have you done anything that's worthy enough to get an agent and they're like no that's why I need an agent uh, okay, so so my 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 philosophy in that, and not saying this is right, this is what I did. It just you you do it yourself. You make your own noise. You make your own your own path. So I had created by that point, Lizzie Bandires had come around. Lizzie Bandires co-created with by Hank Green. Okay, and the reason why Hank Green approved of working with me, I'm guessing, is that he had seen at the time after we met, he had seen my work, and I showed it to him, and he's like, "Oh, you actually know how to tell a story." So I had to show him these other pieces. Of things and those other pieces were like self-funded web series the classic i'm doing web series and so forth and uh i guess fortunate for me that i had really tried her extremely hard to make my web series very good good being the qualifier by those who watch it <laughs> so, you know uh and uh from there it becomes like all right now you have these calling cards you have these pieces that show all right you know you are a skilled writer you're a skilled director or a storyteller, and now we trust you to do this story. How did you meet Hank to originally show him some of your previous work? Um, I met him at a YouTube event in Mountain View, which is the Bay Area, Google HQ, at like this thing called a Digitour, which was like a, con a YouTube concert, and I had no idea who he was at the time when I met him. I mean, I, 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 there were people there, like all these old school YouTubers, Shay Carl was there, Tazon Day was there. Like there was, you know, if you walked around the room and you knew old school YouTube, you'd go like, oh, there's a lot of old school YouTube here. And I think they had, they had like bust in or flown in a bunch of people to see this tour to kind of like, you know, promote it on YouTube. And the people who were there overnight, the Shay Carls, the Hank Greens and so forth, um, basically at the, uh, the tour was over, they didn't know where to go. So, and I was actually in the Bay Area at the time. And I was like, well, we should go to, down the street over here is this, is this great Mexican club bar, not club, bar um, restaurant, and we can just go hang there. And that's where uh, Hank and I actually had the first Lizzie Benedire's conversations. And the show is basically this modernization of the classic Jane Austen novel, Pride and Prejudice. Correct. Uh, what, what about that work said, hey, this needs to be readapted for a modern era? It wasn't, I don't, I don't know if it's really that specific piece. I mean, yes, it, it's a great piece to use. Um, I think it's more of like we've seen classic works, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, right, uh, adapted into all mediums. You know, there's a Pride and Prejudice comic book. There's a Pride and Prejudice movie. There's a Pride and Prejudice TV show. There's like it's it's all sorts of things. I'm sure there's a board game, right? Like there's like uh, every medium has a Pride and Prejudice and probably multiples of them. And we hadn't seen one on YouTube. And what does, what is a adaptation on YouTube? And that was really the question that, that defines it away and separates it from the miniseries with Colin, with Colin Firth or the movie with Keira Knightley or the comic book even. It's like YouTube uh, at the time, and still I would say, is its own medium. There's things that you do in video 
which I'm sure <laughs> many of your guests would, 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 would echo, that you do on YouTube that you can't do on TV and vice versa or, or you know, best practices, right? Um, a classic example is that we don't do credits on screen. We don't do on-screen credits on our shows. Because, like, uh, you know, you, you, you were, Spider-Man's about to come out. I'm sure when you watch Spider-Man, uh, I, don't know, I don't know what's going to happen in it, but, like, it probably has a big, you know, 30-second plus two-minute credit sequence at the beginning. You think a YouTube user is going to sit through two minutes of credits? No way. No way. <laughs> so, <laughs> Not even on Netflix anymore. We just skip the credits. Yeah, you skip the credits, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So it's like, it's like yeah, you should, you, you know, people do deserve to be credited, and you should have credits, and, and they should be somewhere. But YouTube has things like the description, and like you know, there are plenty of places to put credits. And I'd argue descriptions is far more effective than a flashing bunch of text. <laughs> you know, but that's a, I digress. But yeah. yes. So, so you see YouTube as this way of telling new types of stories. Yes. And uh, you and Hank come up with a series and release it on the platform. Mm -hmm. And does it do really well out of the out of the gates, or is it something? That, how did you promote it? How did it define it? really well? <laughs> did it? The audience was enthusiastic. Viewership yes. engagement was high. Yeah, yeah. You, you, audience was enthusiastic. Viewership engagement was high. Okay, viewership was not high in context of what it was. Um, give credit what credit's due. I, it was Hank's idea to, to to do this theory, and it was and we came together and we executed it together. I was more of the operator showrunner of the show, but Hank was very integral in all facets of *Midnight Diaries*. Okay, so no doubt that that show would not be anything what it was without without him as the moment. Right. So we released the show, episode one, and then Hank tweets about it, and Hank's got a big audience. Okay, and I think the first day, if I remember correctly, that YouTube video got like five thousand views, which is nothing crazy, especially. I mean, it's, it's much bigger in context, you know, seven years ago, six years ago, but then it is today. But five thousand views from zero is pretty good with no subscribers on their channel and everything like that. So. That's pretty good. And you also saw the audience, people responding to it, like comments and like, oh, I like this. I think I like this. And some people didn't. And of course, that's fine. And then, uh, so the first, I would say cleanly, the first 10,000 eyeballs, individual eyeballs, probably more, but I'm, just, I'm safely going to say this number, 10,000, were from Hank Green's audience, no doubt. And they loved it. Well, enough of them loved it <laughs> to keep the show going. And so that, it, it took off like a, like a rocket, I would say, from there. And it didn't, in a sense, go viral in the sense where, like, you know, there's no, no, I don't think a single episode has more than three million views. I'm not sure if a single episode has two million views, actually. And the show is pretty old. So it doesn't have that, like, 30 million view, vir you know, virality or anything like that. But it, the people who loved it, they really loved it. And that audience stuck through it through the whole time. And so it worked. And it was actually amusing to, to see that, like, you know, press started to pick up on it too, and they would, like people would discover it. And, like Time Magazine blogged about it, and and it was just really strange because I was like, wow, I kind of want this to happen later because my strategy was to like have it build and then try to do a press push, and then people would just binge it, and I and so one new viewer would give me like thirty viewers or thirty views across thirty videos instead of having them come into episode one and not being able to do anything else and watch the second episode. But it worked out. I mean, obviously, you know, we're still talking about that show today, and probably one of the most famous web series of all time. Yeah. So this is 2012. 2012. In the same year, you co-founded your first venture, Pemberley Digital. Yes. What inspired you to create the business? Well, I, it was the deal. It was the deal we made. So Hank and I had started Lizzie Bennett Diaries, and then um, immediately we had offers for it. Like, this is the MCN era, where, like, uh, Big Frame was still around and Machinima was still around, and people were making offers for the show and saying that they want the rights to sell to, to not say own it or partially own it, and, but then sell the advertising. This is what the MCM model was back then. And you know, like like 
deficit financed the rest of the show because what they I think what they saw was a, a format that was catching on with YouTube that was innovative and that was economical <laughs> so <laughs> the show doesn't cost much to produce in context with like a Game of Thrones obviously but uh, so that's what they saw and so we had offers right away so the, the company we went with was um, now they're called Kin Community uh, the network which has like Rosanna Pensino I believe and uh, some other people and uh but at the time it was deca digital was, entertainment at the time it was deca yeah. yes yes Old michael school. wayne ha, has been on the podcast and we talked about some of those oh, days and the projects they worked on nice yeah. nice did he mention this he may have alluded to it okay yeah yeah, yeah. so so michael wayne at the time uh he they had they had they had gone through their smosh era where they had like smosh and and they they, they sold smosh to alloy mm-hmm. at the time he then that like reached out and we had, we had we had become friendly because of, again my my body of work had, had grown at that time and I decided like hey I, I showed it to him and he's like what do you want to do with this and he, we had a conversation and, and honestly I didn't think of Michael Wayne first I didn't think of Decca as the place to put this and um, I respect him a lot as a, as an incredibly astute shrewd businessman like he's he has all my respect but at the time I just knew him as this 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 guy right. <laughs> And, and so he had this foresight of going, you have a format here. You should do more books. You should do, you know, not just Jane Austen. You should do you know, Mary Shelley and, and Charles Bronte and whatever, right? And, and this format. I was like, oh, okay, that's, that's amazing. I, I, I honestly had not thought of that when we started the show because we, we were just starting the show, right? And so him, Hank, myself, and other people making the deals decided to form Family Digital, which Kin does have an ownership stake in, uh, minority ownership stake in, and um, that was going to be the holding company for all these vlog book adaptations. And um, that's, I mean, it's, it's in the like operating agreement that this is what the purpose of the company. <laughs> so, so to do these vlog adaptations, and so all the the, the, the shows under in in this um, under this banner would ideally go through Kin's you know MCN network, and they'd sell the advertising for. And that was really the start of it. That's why I was, I, that was suddenly overnight. I was I was my own entrepreneur. There we go. <laughs> and, and had you considered yourself an entrepreneur prior to that? No, I hadn't. Huh. And and granted, there was a transition into this mainly because I didn't. I've never founded a company, and I never went. To, I've never gone to business school. Um, but I did get in two thousand. I want to say two thousand eleven. May have been twelve, okay? <laughs> but I'm pretty sure it was eleven. So before Lizzie Bennett Diaries, uh, one of my men, one of my mentory figures in my life gave me the probably one of the single greatest pieces of advice that has changed my career. And, and so at the time, he's, he's like, I'm a writer, I'm, a, I'm writing scripts, and I'm writing you know, stories and, and specs and pilots and stuff and trying to sell these shows. And he goes, uh, that's great. <laughs> By the way, he's a writer too. And he's like, that's great. Uh, and he says, uh, the sooner you embrace your entrepreneurial spirit, the sooner you'll succeed. And I was like, Oh, and he, and, he, and he qualifies this by saying that like he does he he sees it in me. He sees this like thinking of of economics and monetization and strategy and marketing and all these things that writers don't think about. They don't they don't it's not going through their heads, and that's it's perfectly fine. Um, and so I'm I'm designing this this web series to like be able to monetize on YouTube and to be able to sustain on YouTube. And that's like one of the goals on the outset to try to get his sustainability, not just like write a great show. And so he sees this kind of thinking right away and he can you know, lean into that, like, like push yourself into that area. That's where you'll, you'll find your, your, your success. And well, he's right. <laughs> so suddenly I was an entrepreneur. <laughs> like it was, it was, it was cool. 
And what was the hardest part about being a first time founder? I mean, you just don't know anything <laughs> like, like, uh, you know, what's a PNL? <laughs> like, okay. He's <laughs> like, it's like, you know, people ask me, it's like, Hey, can you, can you, can you, like, you know, who, uh, can you send me the PNL? And I was like, what's a, what's a PNL? It's like, yeah, you got You have to like, you know, you have to get, you have to file taxes. And I was like, what? <laughs> like, you, you do like a, you know, a K one or a schedule C or whatever. And like, what's, what's, what's <laughs> like, okay. All right. It's like, don't worry. No, no, it's, we'll have someone do that for you. But like, all right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> but that's, just, that, that was the, the, the learning curve. Yeah. Like so you do the Lizzie Bennett diary series. And then I'm curious because it seems like, you know, there would have been this temptation to say, well, we had this successful series. Mm -hmm. Why not continue to do it for multiple seasons? Right. It has an arc and it, it lasts, I believe three seasons. Is that correct? Well, it lasted for a hundred episodes. It lasted, oh, okay. it lasted a whole year. Okay. Terrific. Yeah, so, so it lasted yeah. a while. Yeah. But, but there could have been this phenomenon of turning, you know Lizzie Bennett the character into a vlogger right like launching her as a personality on YouTube were there any thoughts around that of like taking a specific character and leaning into the YouTube vlogger framework um n honestly no and, and I'm actually very curious I'm not saying this is a regret I'm actually curious to see what I wonder what happened if we did it you know now why, the reason why we didn't do it is uh, one of the reasons was that we, we got to the end of the show and we kind of wanted to hit a hit like kind of period it and end it with like oh they the darcy and lizzie got together and that's how that's how Pride and prejudice ends and you kind of wanted like cement that legacy there also at the time too like we had like we had done the book deal that the book club published for with simon and schuster uh later on and so we kind of already had these other avenues playing the dvds the dvd thing so we didn't need to necessarily rush into it and the, the, the Kin deal, the NECA deal, was for um, already kind of like a two-series deal. Like, I had to do a, NECA, a second series under under the deal, which is what well, I wanted. I mean, it's mm -hmm. one of the things you, you as a, if you're a writer or a creator, like, you want the blind deal. Like, like, like I'll take the blind deal, no problem, you know? And then so um, I knew what I needed to do as a creator. Also, the franchise already had what it had to do, what it needed to do next as a franchise, which was publish this book and do these DVDs. So there was plenty going on already there. So um, I actually wonder, I, I, I'm, I'm curious because like, I mean, everybody in the Zipan Diaries, the actors at the time were all very much actors. And not speaking for them, but I don't, I don't know how open they would have been. I mean, I'm sure it's different now for some of them because some of them have kind of become personalities in their own way. But at the time, I think everyone was kind of like, oh, now I want to jump to television or now I want to jump to like, you know, getting these TV roles or something like that. That's my feeling. Yeah. Okay? And you would have to ask them, but that's, so it was just yeah. kind of a natural stopping point, and y the the series had a life of its own in other formats mm -hmm. after that, and then you move on and you work on your next project, which yes. was Emma a Approved. Emma Approved, yes, yeah. exactly. And that was another Jane Austen adaptation based on Emma. Um, now, this was, like again, part of the the, 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 the two-series deal with Kin, and this is one where, uh, like, M Michael and Kin, they were like, you know, whatever book you want. You want to do Dracula, you can do Dracula. You want to do the County Monte Cristo, you can do the County Monte Cristo. Like anything. You want to do Shakespeare, go do Shakespeare. And it just made business sense to do another Jane Austen, right? Like, like you first the off, existing audience. Yeah, existing audience, that, and also align right to them. And then I have Kin as a partner, and Kin is is a very female centric network. So why do something very male without gender swapping people, right? Gender bending. Like why do County Monte Cristo, um, and do something like that? Why not just kind of go, you know, fastball down the middle and, and do it this way and do Emma? 
um, and it was in this time, like Hank, you know, had, had kind of done his part. Like he said, like, all right, I want to do Pine Bridges and I did it. And Hank is, you know, multi-entrepreneur all over the place. So many things going on. Like he, he wasn't able to do, to put as much time into, into this one as, as, um, you know, as he wanted to move on, of course. And so for Emma, it was one where like, this is a, this is a character that I gravitate to a lot in my research. And I was like, okay, well, I'll, I'll happily do Emma. And, um, at the time, uh, I actually had a bit of a fashion kind of, not say background, but a little bit of an exposure into the fashion world. So it actually made it very easy to turn Emma into like a like virtual fashion blogger. So she was like a YouTube fashion blogger as Emma Woodhouse, the character, and it just completely works because that's what, you know, no, no one who knows that character is in the classic form would go like, oh, she would never be a fashion blogger. Like that's exactly what she would be. And it makes absolute sense for that character to be that. And then we turned that into its own mechanism where it was like driving transactions in, in clothing. This is like the precursor of like the fashion, the bloggers like, you know, affiliate linking everything, right? To the sales and all that. Like now it's ubiquitous. But back when Emma Prue was doing it, it was so rare. It was super rare, um, especially in a scripted series. Okay. So you were looking at it as a vehicle for driving e-commerce, right? As oh, another way of monetizing 100%, this production. 100%. Yeah. And I'll give you the, give you the, the non monetization business reason for it. And I'll give you the business reason for it. The non-monetization business reason was that in Lizzie Bennett Diaries, so Lizzie Bennett Diaries wins the Emmy for interactive program. And it's known for, not just because it's a vlog adaptation done very well, it's known for like the characters being on social media and they're all talking to each other. And it's like so groundbreaking at the time. Wins the Emmy, all these tweets, it feels so alive as it's running. It feels like you're there tweeting at Lizzie as she's going through this Darcy love, love and hate relationship. And, and the fans love it, and I love it, and everything's great. It's incredibly hard to do. Uh, it's incredibly time-consuming. Uh, not regretting it at all. The one flaw to anybody, anybody who's not creative to that system is that none of that makes money. There's no revenue being generated, no matter you write one tweet versus a thousand tweets. No revenue is being generated in that, in that mechanism. Lizzie and Darcy being cute on Twitter between episodes 80 and 81 doesn't affect the monetization at all. doesn't drive viewership, doesn't do anything. You, maybe you could say it does, but you have no clean statistic that you can point to that can, that, that can say this happened and this happened, right? And so when we started designing M Approved, I'm like, I'm going to solve this. Like, I'm going to solve this problem. Like, this was like my, like <laughs> me being me. I'm like, I am going to solve transmedia monetization right now with M Approved. And I feel I did it. <laughs> so... Um, I made Emma a fashion blogger and made all the clothing monetized in the show. So 90% of she, what she wears and 90% of anything any of the girls wear in that show is some type of partnership. Whether it's the clothing was donated to us, whether it's an affiliate link, whether it's a straight whatever. Okay? And at no point in the show does Emma, the character, stop the show and say, buy the clothes. So it's not gratuitous at all. It just, she looks fucking cute. Okay, I swear. Really cute on the show. And if you choose to click on the link where it says, check out Emma's blog, and you buy the clothes, we get a cut. And that's very, very passive. And at the time, we were generating like thousands of dollars in revenue just in that mechanism. So even though the view counts of Emma approved was far less when it was running than Lisa Ben Diaries, like, not hugely less, but like two thirds. Okay, like Elizabeth Dyer's revenue during when it ran was only the AdSense revenue because it had nothing. It didn't have time to opt in anything. It had no branding deals. It had none of those things yet, because Emma Proof had the branding deals. And granted, it, it, 
you know, piggyback on Lisa's success. And it had all the partnerships. The, all those things was generating like 3x, 4x the revenue of the series. So now you go, all right, Bernie, your creative team is spending all this time writing f fake fashion blog posts and taking these pictures of them looking really pretty and like the, the, the sunset and everything like that. W why are you doing that? I can actually point to a revenue model and say, the more we do this, the more revenue we make. And all of that basically, and that's not like, we, you know, the show was not wildly profitable. It just sustained. So like Lizzie Van Diaries had a $0 clothing budget. Like all the actors had to basically bring their own clothes and we supplemented it with a little bit. So I didn't have $0, but it had nothing, okay? Emma approved wardrobe budget was basically covered because we did these partnerships. So that's the beauty. I mean, that's what I think. You know, the show, uh, I'm proud of the, the show's quality and, it, and of course it wins the Emmy uh, as well. But I look at that and I go, that was the time when I said, I'm going to figure out monetization in transmedia multi-platform storytelling on, on video and social media, and I figured it out. One solution. I figured out one solution in that area. There are probably many ways to solve this problem. Yeah, very smart. Well, I'm sure we're going to talk about more ways of innovative monetization, but these two projects were all part of Pemberley Digital, which mm -hmm. I, I believe is still going on today, right? Are you still involved or doing I mean, projects the, the, with Pemberley? The company is still there right now. There's no active project right now. We did an M approved revival last year that just you know, didn't, wasn't able to sustain, so we had to stop it. And um, so right now the, show, the company is dormant. But, I mean, the channels are still there. <laughs> so in 2015, you co-founded Canvas Media Studios yes. and raised money from Entertainment One. Yes. What was your focus with Canvas Media? So Canvas was more kind of a traditional model of selling shows, like developing shows and then selling shows to, like, networks. So our first show at Canvas was a show called Vanity, um, which was done with Style Hall and was sponsored by Maybelline. Okay. Um, and then E1 uh, actually took the show and sold it overseas okay, as a format. And so then we also had this other notable show, uh, this series we partnered with Astronauts Wanted called Socio, which sold to MTV. So that was kind of more of a traditional development model where we would develop ideas or shows and pitch them and then hopefully get them sold into development to be made. Primarily for traditional television or doing a lot of web series and digital Either work or. as well? Either yeah. or, okay. yeah. So at the time of that era, there was, you know, there was YouTube Red, there was Go90. There was, at the, at a, for a hot minute, there was like Watchable and like Vimeo and like uh, all these things, all of which are kind of gone now, which is, uh, you know, just a sign of times, I suppose. Yeah. And uh, all those things, were, were all these places where we looked at as our customers, potentially, or our partners, potentially. And um, that was what that, that, that company did. Yeah. So you mentioned that was a unique moment in time. A lot of these companies spending money on content. Yes. Uh, I wonder if it is really that different from today, right? It may not be Go90 or you know, the full screen SVOD service anymore, but you have Quibi and you've got Amazon Studios and Apple and everybody else. So is it the same gold rush, you know, uh, phenomenon or craze around content or is it, it with just different players or is this a different thing we're experiencing? I mean, I think this is different because the, 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 the bar is higher now. So I don't think you're pitching to Apple without like, you know, the Steven Spielbergs and the Whoopi Goldbergs and the people they basically rolled out in their keynote. And you're, not, you're also not doing that to Quibi either from my, my understanding of it. Based on what they're paying per minute of content. And based on who they're announcing in all their shows. They're announcing, like, these big things. They haven't... I don't think that, like, Apple's announced a show with, like, a YouTuber, you know, right? I don't think Quibi has either, right? I'm, I'm pretty sure. So so you're, they're not, like, going, oh, let's get Lily Singh and then package her with, uh, 
uh, Cardi B and then throw her in a show together, which which sounds great. Like that was. But um, uh, Lily Singh is now going to be a talk show host. Yeah, yeah. So that's yeah. great. That's yeah. you know, I'm not singling her out. Sure. She's she's doing just fine. Yeah. But you know, there was that, mo- but that was the model of like YouTube Red and 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 uh, Go Ninety for a while, which was like let's take take some online star, let's put him in something and let's put it out. And we, whether we attach uh, a, a traditional star with that person or not. Let's do that together and put it out. So let's do this with that, and this with that, and this with that, and and that that it was a good attempt, I guess. And now we're seeing the result of it, which is that they're not doing it anymore. So I think the writing's on the wall there. But um, that's not what we're seeing right now. Like you're not, you don't have that. And I I really look at Apple, Amazon, Netflix, um, at least so far. Quibi is I, I I think we didn't wait for it to come out and actually like release the app, right, or whatever it's gonna be. Before we can actually say what that is, but and you know Netflix, these are basically TV. This is like they're basically all like HBOs. So how do you get into that? Like how do you go in? You, sure, you can get you can pull a uh, Anissa Ray or or the Comedy Central show, and and then Broad City. There it is. Okay, so like you can pull one of those, doing it independently, and going in and traditional and doing a Crazy Ex Girlfriend, like all these things. And sure, you get those 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 those. We'll call them unicorns. You know, great for them, by the way. Not taking anything away from them, but you don't have this kind of like rolling up of like, you know, all the top 100 YouTube stars have something somewhere in development or on the platform or anything. I, I just that's we're not there anymore. Do you think that they should should influencers be cast in these new productions and have this platform, or is there a difference? Is there a world? occupied by influencers and they're creating kind of this casual, maybe even UGC style content versus you have actors and this is a more premium kind of scripted or serialized production. Is there a difference in between those worlds? I mean, there's a difference, but there are different people kind of, kind of um, straddling it. So uh, I think uh, Anna Akana does this really well where she's both. I mean, she's very clearly an influencer and she's very clearly an actor, right? And she's clearly has, is good at both. Whether you like her or not, that's your own personal preference. But like, she's clearly ex- effective in both areas and doing that really well. And and other people who who I'm sure the more influ- more most influencers don't care. They're like, you want to pay me a bunch of money to play this character relatively and effectively because I'm not trained at all on the show. Sure, I'll take your money. Okay, we're all it, it makes business sense to me and and so forth. I, so I don't really like that. Uh, I, 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 we all know YouTubers and influencers that have acting or traditional media aspirations. We know that. And we know they're there. I know uh, um, just because I know them. Like Jimmy Wong is very classically trained. Grace Helbig is classically trained. Obviously, Anna Kana is classically trained. I'm guessing. <laughs> like, I don't know, but I, I, I know the other two are. Um, so all these people have classical training in, in, in like acting, quote unquote. And I'm not saying that makes them better influencers. And I'm not saying it doesn't. I'm just saying they have it. And so, like Jimmy Wong's in like the Mulan movie, like like he's doing just fine, okay. So like you see these opportunities here. It doesn't mean that all of them can. Like, one breakout person over the last couple of years coming out of BuzzFeed, like Safia Nygard or Safia Nygard, I don't know how to say her name exactly. And then like like sheer numbers are huge on YouTube, and she's you know she's she's very pretty and and, and charismatic. And I'm like, all right, if she really wanted to be an actress or a star, she could do that. But I don't think she cares. That's, that's my reading of her. Okay, prove me wrong. But I'm not reading that, and I don't think her being in like Escape the Night with Joey Graceffa, which is a bunch of influencers kind of having fun with something, counts as 
you know, Jimmy Wong being in the Mulan movie, right? Yeah, there's a difference between playing yourself and playing a role. Yes, yeah. exactly. And 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 how much you know seriousness you're doing it. Like, uh, I I, mean, I think Jimmy was in New Zealand for six months, like working out to play a soldier. You know, it's like you don't have that with the others. So it, it's really just to kind of like uh, and for everyone's different. So what I find now, though, to answer your question, you have your influencers who just love being what they're doing. They're just their own category and they're doing influencing things. You have your actors who are want to be actors. Do they want influencers money? Of course they do. Okay. But they also don't want to turn into that to, to start like vlogging every day or Instagramming every day or everything. But then you have the hybrids who are, who are straddling together and the different levels of this. They're low levels or high levels. I look at it as if, if you're looking at it from the industry of Hollywood, People go, all right, actors, they can't, they don't get to act every day unless you're a superstar. So you need to make, supplement your income with something. And if you can supplement that with, with influencing, then hey, amazing. And so I, I have a couple of friends uh, who, who I sense are supplementing all their income, to, their living in wages, stuff like that, by doing influencing things um, YouTube, Instagram, Twitch, whatever it is. Good for them. And, and while, while they're doing that, they can hope to get roles. So good for them. I think there's, you know, another class, too, of these mega successful celebrities, the Will Smiths, the Jack Blacks, uh, the Rock, who are turning to social platforms as a way to extend their their cult of personality, their celebrity even further, right? Reach new international audiences. Oh, yeah. 100%. You know, ex- extend their earning power of their feature film or television careers. Yeah. Uh, and use this as a way to kind of create additional longevity for their career. Oh, the comedians, late night hosts, all those people. 100% agree. And I, I, I think it's like, it's very smart because it's kind of like, why not? You have this traditional tr- mechanism support behind you already with your agents and managers and business people and all that stuff. Sure, you know, if, if you know, when Will Smith vlogs, do people go like, oh, that doesn't feel like people go, that's not, it feels inauthentic or whatever. Sure, but people still watch him, right? And it's clearly working, at least to some level. And then you look at someone like, you know, we're talking about a podcast. Look at Joe Rogan, right? Like, like, I was going to say, that's <laughs> the next thing is that now all these celebrities have podcasts. The, the, my favorite podcasts to listen to are hosted by Alec Baldwin and Conan O'Brien. Nice. <laughs> so it just goes to show you this, this trend that, you know, there's a gold rush in podcasting. There's this excitement around this audio format and uh, traditional celebrities are turning to it as a way to exercise maybe a different creative muscle that I don't think they've gotten to flex in other parts of their career. And also it's a great way to extend audience and increase monetization. I agree with everything you just said. Yeah. hundred <laughs> percent. I mean, and like, that's our podcast folks. Thanks yeah, so much. All right. That's it. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it, I guess and then the scary part to uh, listeners and so forth, it's like, okay, how do you break through? Okay. We just had a conversation about like, you know, whether or not I should start podcasting with my own podcast. And I've thought about it dozens of hundreds of times. And I go like, all right, it's a lot of work. It's a lot of resources and so forth. That's one, one thing that's not time. And then like, you know, there's the, how do you break through? And, and is that through just through attrition? Is that through luck? Is that through paying for, for pay to play? Um, all these things are, are viable questions. I'm not saying they're bad things. I'm just kind of going, hmm, I don't know. But if you're a celebrity and you already have, you know, a name and an audience with you, yeah, it's a lot easier to launch a podcast and a YouTube channel or Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Get that check mark. 
day one. Very true. So I want to kind of going back to your you know experience launching Canvas Media. What were the big takeaways that you took from that venture, and then what prompted you to then go and say last year I'm going to found 96 Next? What was the vision and the creative uh, kind of driving force behind those those decisions? Sure, Canvas taught me that I shouldn't be a traditional development person. It taught me that it sh- I should be in innovation. I sh- it taught me I should be uh, like pushing boundaries and and being. I don't know what you want to use the word, like a maverick or like whatever, like a disruptor or something like that. The idea of going around and selling pilot scripts or movie scripts and then having them sit in development for months and years and, you know, praying that one gets made or not. Hey, if you're in that battle, all the power to you, man, go, go kill it. Like, I hope you make a ton of money, like, and make lots of movies and TV shows and, and all that. I just, it's just not built. I'm just not built for that. I was going to say, I can tell it's not your style. You're like, oh, I have this great creative idea. I want to do it. I want to make it happen. Yeah. And see and, it come and, to life. And then I, 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 I'm, I'm, what I found is I'm really good at using new tech. I'm really good at using new platforms, things that you know you can't use if you're broadcasting over an antenna line or through a cable line. Like you can't, you can't use those things. So, so that was that. So after Canvas, I left Canvas at the end of 2017 and took some time off. And so then I just said, all right, you know, I'm going back into disruptor maverick mode and I'm going to try to get the, the first thing off, like just fire it off. <laughs> like like, like I'm, I want to get to air as fast as possible and get to innovation as fast as possible and really go back to that idea of like disrupting and changing the system in a way or at least trying to. And so that's when 96X came around where I just kind of founded this venture to go like, all right, this is going to be me being crazy and innovative again. Where's the name come from? It comes from like the idea of like you know, of a of, of a feedback loop, so it's like if you put the nine and six together, it's actually looking look like looks like an infinity, and so how we draw a logo is like it's a constant loop. And your first project, Artificial, is this live audience interactive sci-fi series, and it's already become a huge success. Won the Peabody Award. Uh, tell us about you know what you're seeking to explore through the show. Um, Man, you say it like that. That sounds crazy. It's like, <laughs> well, it is crazy. <laughs> like, it just no. started. Well, it's just but, started. Yeah, I mean, I remember the day that you got back from New York, and you're like, we want a Peabody, and it was this, like, surreal experience. But yeah. it's a testament to the incredible kind of groundbreaking work that you're doing, like you said, being a maverick, being an innovator, using these new formats and technologies to tell stories. Where did the inspiration come from? What are you seeking to explore through this type of show? So at the time, I was looking at Twitch very closely because Twitch was an, I looked at it as an untapped platform. Like it was a growing platform. It had just but gotten that acquisition from Amazon. Well, not just, but like it happened. And um, the audience was growing. It was super engaged. And it was different. Like, all right. We all, you know, so, so YouTube has had plenty of scripted shows now with Red and Facebook has done scripted shows and and all that and and you know kind of push the storytelling a little bit and like all right what's 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 up with twitch what's going on here okay and so coming into to the new year i was like all right how do i i want to i want to play this twitch stuff out like i want to see what's actually going on there and um had some conversations with some people high level and they were like we want to push the platform like we love what happened with like twitch plays pokemon and all these kind of really just whimsical things and we get pitched so many generic, scripted, choose-your-adventure stories on Twitch through t- to Twitch, which can, cannot work on Twitch because it's communal, not individual, like Netflix is, which, you know, choose-your-adventure works fine there, that they're not looking at the platform correctly. And so you, being me, Bernie, two Emmy wins in innovative content, and like, what can you do? Okay, you know, we had this long discussion about what the platform is and what it's not. And then went away, came back a month or so later, and pitched Artificial, this concept of 
live streaming on Twitch using the Twitch audience as a Turing test. And it was like, it was like instant. It was like, oh, perfect. That's what we should do uh, on Twitch. Let's do it. All right. And so that was the fastest thing. We were, we, we were out and we were out by July. So we had to form everything really quickly. And, um, and so the show, as you said, is a scripted sci-fi show, but it's live on Twitch and it's also interactive. And a lot of the things we call, we use the term audience interactive because the audience is the one interacting with the, the, the content and the audience is changing things and it's communal. So it's not choose your own adventure because you don't, you don't, your choice may not be the choice. You, you, what you're trying to make the choice is going to be whittled through characters and voting and democracy and, and all that stuff. And it co- out comes this result. And then the story is canonically set. So there's no resetting. There's not like, oh, you, you, you sent the character to its death. Now see the other version. Like what you've decided is it. It's forever canon. It, it, it's, it's like uh, I was discussing this today in, uh, uh, in another conversation. I was like, you don't have a choice in this. Sometimes you, you have a con- non-consequential choices for a character. Like, do we like coffee or tea? That's pretty non-consequential unless you're like allergic to something or, you know, or whatever. Um, it's a non-consequential choice. So it doesn't really matter what the choice is. It doesn't matter if the audience votes for it or not. And our show, especially in season two, because we've really optimized this, is that all the choices are consequential. Like they're super consequential. So it's like in, in my example to you, James, it's like, it's like, should I hug you or should I punch you? All right, that really changes our relationship. I would hope so. Yeah, <laughs> like I don't, I can't, if I punch you, I can't unpunch you. That's happened. So even if we like, hypothetically, I punch you and we make up and we're still buddies, I still was the guy who punched you, <laughs> you know? So, so that's, that's never going away versus the hug, which is like, all right, we're continuing our cordial relationship where we're friendly and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And drink beers and play board games, you know, all those things. So, so that's, now if you leave that choice to the audience member, that's the type of thing we're pushing is like the audience is participating in the story. So you're saying, what is artificial demonstrating is, is, you know, oh, it's live, it's scripted, it's sci-fi. At the end of the day, it is demonstrating the audience participating in the story and being canonical to it. And I noticed that uh, the show also incorporates some really interesting approaches to monetization. And some of that's, you know, baked into to Twitch with the ability to uh, essentially allow the audience to contribute, right? They can vote with their wallet. Yes. So through the Bits program, they, mm-hmm. can, they can express their interest in a particular choice by you know, paying to vote for it. Of course, of course. So this is something we added in season two, which, which I think is potentially game-changing to our entire industry. It's the idea of voting with monetization, right? So going back to hug punch. All right, I'm gonna hug or I'm gonna punch you. Now, we're at consequential, people care. The, the people that, that hate you, they're gonna want you to see, your, see you get punched. And the people that care about you want you to get hugged, okay? So if you look at the Twitch audience, which is you know very, very chaotic, and we'll, you know, classic word trolley, but I'll say chaotic. Punch is going to win. Like, it's going to be like four to one. You're getting punched, okay? But now you've given power to the audience to sway that vote through monetization, meaning that in our system, you, you as an IP address get one vote, I get one vote as one IP address. But if you want to donate the currency, the bits, you get more votes. And so what we're finding in our show now is that the audience is actually swaying the votes for the righteous reason. And we're seeing a couple fans here and there being the champion of the character and unchaotically doing the show where the chaos version doesn't win in that case. We've seen it a couple times in the last few episodes. And it's, I think it's historic. <laughs> like, I really think so. I think it's like, you know, if, if 
Artificial won the Peabody last year for not this technology. And this is technology we introduced this season. So whatever happens from this point on, if it wins any other major awards or whatever, knock on wood, it's going to be, be partly because of this method that we are pioneering in this, in, in, in this series. And it goes and monetizes. So now you have suddenly a freemium-based system for your users or your viewers, not unlike, say, they're not dissimilar to like the freemium-based systems in mobile gaming. Right, where you know, you don't get the you don't cap your audience in anything that you know one audience member could could throw down a thousand dollars and completely take over the show. Mm-hmm. I think it's amazing. I mean, so you have yeah. to use a business term effective price discrimination because you can cater to all varying levels of passion or interest in the program. So you're creating a more robust channel for monetization. You're also eliminating your troll problem. You're fixing your monetization problem. And you are kind of creating these really unique, interesting new ways of storytelling all at once. It's very elegant. Damn. You should should host a podcast. (laughs) Maybe, huh? I mean, that's exactly right. So so it's it's the blend of, again, this is what I think makes me very unique as a creator, is that you have a creator in me that creates at a pretty high level or a good level. Okay, at that. I'm I'm pretty good at that, all right? But you also have a creator that can think like a business-minded strategist who can look at this and go, oh. This is, there's a different way to approach this that benefits everybody, everybody. It benefits the show, benefits the monetization, it benefits the technology, it benefits the format. All of this plays into effect. Like voting is a pain in the ass to implement. It's scary. It's a lot of writing. It's a lot, you know, there's all these negatives. But suddenly you go, oh, wait, wait, we can, we can make money? Oh, well, well, then we have to put in voting, right? <laughs> Who's gonna say no to that? Exactly, <laughs> right? much easier decision at that point. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So so precisely, that's, this, that's, that's, the sweet spot when mm-hmm. when I like to think you know creatively you're making people cry or super dramatic and stuff that's all great I'm I, I'm not knocking those things but man when you get both to happen like this it's it's beautiful it's like a massively amazingly beautiful when you get that synergy so let me ask you what does the future of interactive storytelling look like is it all gonna live on Twitch do you see YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, hosting any of this type of behavior? Will it exist on new platforms like Caffeine or Mixer? Well, it's it's definitely not all going to be on one. That's for sure. Okay. And um, I think it's going to go platform to platform because we're not only talking about like the kind of like the, the text-based shooter adventure, like choices or episodes, which do this really, really well, by the way, and monetize those things really, really well too, by the way. So you just don't use video. It's a thing we don't use there. To answer your question, how does interactive content evolve? Uh, in the kind of traditional content. So we're, not, we're taking out gaming. So let's ignore gaming, okay? And and we're taking out like, you know, the, the, let's say stay in video, okay? I really do think in general that it's going to uh, start moving to a freemium system. Kind of like what I described. I'm not sure exactly it's just like just using the same my method with the monetization-based voting. It's just a piece. It's like one magic trick in an arsenal of magic tricks. It's one trick. But I do think we're going to move toward there because that's what the money is. It's kind of like, you know, we just, in, you, 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 you follow gaming, right? And like, we saw this era where um, everybody was buying $50, $60 cartridges uh, or discs for the Xbox. And, and the highest grossing game was Call of Duty or whatever it was. Well, the highest grossing game in the world is not Call of Duty. It's Fortnite. And Fortnite is free. And Fortnite does whatever it is, like $2 billion a quarter, or whatever the number is now. It's like insane. Like, I think Fortnite outgrosses like the top 10 console games together combined. And it's become a platform, right? I mean, the Marshmallow concert that was hosted within Fortnite, it's kind of creating this whole virtual world. Yeah. Akin to like what a Minecraft or a Roblox has done. It's become this 
platform where storytelling, gaming, interactive experiences can happen within it. Yeah, and and I mean, I guess yes, I agree to everything uh, what you just said. The 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 way I look at it is that, like I said, I've said this publicly several times. You know, HBO just had the greatest show, uh, cultural show in the over generation, Game of Thrones, right? And unless you were a big merch person, you capped out at fifteen dollars a month at Game of Thrones, meaning you you bought the subscription to HBO. That's it. So me as a super fan of Game of Thrones could not spend more than fifteen dollars a month because I don't do merch. I'm not. A, I, I don't like hoarding. I don't like stuff. And that's the best. That's all I could do. I could totally. I loved it enough, and I could have totally afford to do more. And it didn't. Why do you think that is? I've wondered this too. If you look at the the monetization for Game of Thrones over time, and I looked it up at one point, and I was shocked at how low it was. It was you know a single digit billion dollars, right? Yeah, Which, terrible. A lot of money, but relative to nothing, what that show could have made is it's infinitesimal. Yeah, and it's like why is there not a Game of Thrones experience like a theme park? There could be you know absolutely what much more branded content merchandise. There could be so many ways to monetize that fan base, and it feels like a lot of missed opportunities. I, I mean, I, I guess the way I can say it, is I just I don't know the answer. I, my 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 hypothesis is that big corporations move very slowly, but do they? Mm. Right, uh, and and so maybe this is a personal belief, but it seems like Warner Media is not as effective at monetizing their content as say Disney. Imagine if. Game of Thrones have been a Disney property. It would have been a totally different experience. I, I'd like to hope so. I mean, maybe there would have been more video games. I mean, there were some Game of Thrones video games. I, I think they were out there. But, but to say like like you know what Disney, how long it took Disney to get? I mean, it took some time to get them to do Galaxy's Edge, right? Which is going to be you know this massive cash cow for them, right? So amazing, great stuff. I I just think like old media is really good at being old media, and it's really hard for them to do new media. So to say that. Warner Media or HBO is going to break, make a, a Game of Thrones experience theme park, right? Well, first off, then you have to look at Game of Thrones as you know it's a very adult, right? So it has to be kind of its own thing. So then you have to get like you know someone very very curated to do that, like the Meow Wolf guys or the or the Sleep No More guys. You can't just like roll it in the Universal Studios and have it be its own land where like you know little kids walk in and they're seeing people's heads chopped off and people, women being, you know, abused and stuff. So like you would have to kind of really curate to that. But I think if you had a, you know, a Meow Wolf, uh, Sleep No More, Game of Thrones, oh my God. I mean, you know, Sleep No More still sells out. It's $150 a night. Still sells out like 12 years in. So imagine, can you imagine what that would have been had they done a Game of Thrones, you know, Sleep No More experience? And by the way, my, 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 my voting mechanism, the monetization system, uh-huh. imagine that thing popping up in the throne room scene at the finale oh. of John and Daenerys. Yeah. Should John do this yep. or that yep. and monetize that one? They would have made a billion dollars right there yep. in like a 30-second window. Yep. <laughs> Shocking. So do you see more traditional entertainment leaning into this? Is there a way that they can learn from the success stories in digital? Yeah, they can. They're just really slow. I, I don't know the platform of Quibi because we haven't seen it yet. I don't know what interactive abilities it has. Right? So I just, I just don't know. You know we have to wait until it comes out. Netflix basically has just uh, Banner Snatch right now. That's all you really do. Okay. Could they start live streaming? Yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm sure the text is there. We've seen that Amazon started live streaming. and also, But, but does, does Amazon and Netflix have a built-in view, data capture system to, to, for active data like comments or polling or or you know whatever bits or like you know game, virtual mini games and all that stuff 
that would take some effort. Yeah. Like her, uh, unless they borrow it from Twitch. Unless they borrow it from Twitch. Yeah. yeah. So that that part doesn't exist yet. So all the technologists I've talked to, they're like, oh yeah, yeah, we could. That is certainly That's doable. That's not the hard part. Yeah. That's anyway. the hard part. Yeah. It's it's the the moving of the like the. the Pivoting the the, the 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 carrier. Yeah, the ocean liner. Yeah, yep, exactly. We got to turn this two degrees. Uh-huh. Oh man. So yeah, that's. I think that's 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 the hurdle. So for me, right now, I look at, I go, you know, anybody could do artificial. They could take the method today, and just do it. It's not like this like thing. It's just like how people took the Lizzie Bennet Dyer's method and, and just did it. It's just a slow system. You know, it, I mean, it took like two years after these Ben Dyers when until like TV shows started like tweeting as characters mm. like that, that thing started happening. And uh, I will take some credit for that. <laughs> but like, like, um, but like, I mean, that's easy. I mean, you can do that very easily. Yeah. I wonder why there aren't more reality TV show formats on digital. Why is there not a version of The Bachelor on Twitch or YouTube? Right. It seems like it would do so well. It would do. I think it would do extremely well if done right. I mean, if actually reality, it, reality formats, it's much easier to use these methods. It is. It really is. I'm almost like making it harder on myself because I'm doing scripted. And so in reality, like we talk about, some, people, some of my friends talk about like, oh, you could do like a Truman Show now. Easily. And it'd be way more interesting than Truman Show because it, it's so manipulable. And you can put the audience into it. And the audience could like Hunger Games stuff into the show. Like... Well, we get to this, and suddenly a bucket of water falls on him out of nowhere. And you're like, "What? Like, like, you could do this stuff now." I don't know. I, I, I maybe we should pitch it. Yeah, <laughs> maybe that's your next challenge, huh? <laughs> but, but uh, I, I don't have an answer for that. I, I think it's that I still think that old media still has a stranglehold on these massive ad dollars. So, like, they're still getting thirty dollars CPMs on their ad breaks in, like, you know, The Bachelor, right? And whether or not their view counts are accurate to that or not, uh, who knows? You know, I, I don't contend that, you know, The Bachelor isn't worth a $30 CPM or that 10 million people or whatever, whatever they're reporting on the, on the ratings are, are watching or not watching that. I do wonder, I do kind of am suspicious about how people are actually watching the ads though. Yeah, that's a fair point because in in an era in which, you know, you can record the show and then skip it or, you know, you tune out and you're talking with your friends about what's going to happen next in the show during the commercial breaks, Mm -hmm. you know, even though this can still be destination TV, you're you're tuning in, you're live broadcast, how much attention is really being paid to the ad break? And so that seems like a a lag in the feedback mechanism from the advertisers, less about the content producers. They're going to sell those ads at a $30 CPM as long as they can. Of course. I think your earlier point is, is more interesting, which is that you know, are they effectively monetizing their audience to the fullest? Obviously not. Because, like, sure, you can serve up those $30 ads, but there are Bachelor super fans out there who would pay, you know, a huge amount to be able to influence the content of the show, who gets to go, you know, on the, whatever the next big date experiences or who goes home or all of those experiences could be democratized through these new technologies. Oh, oh absolutely. Yeah. I, I, like the example I have to give in Star Wars is that we know that Luke blows up the, blows up the Death Star. So this is what version that isn't necessarily interactive, but it just like, it's actually pretty simple. Luke flies his X-Wing with R2-D2 and blows up the Death Star. Okay. We're not going to change that. We're not going to allow people to change that. But there's that scene where they're they're getting ready for the Battle of Yavin, and RGD2 is getting pulled up into the X-wing, and people and, and they need to load up the torpedoes into the X-wing so that Luke can use them to blow up the Death Star, right? Star Wars could essentially, or Disney could essentially sell those two interrogations as like, 
who are the two mechanics who load up those proton torpedoes? And you and I go, they're going to be us. <laughs> <laughs> it is James and Bernie. That's right. We're going to be the canonical people that load up the proton torpedoes to blow up the Death Star. And, and then Disney goes, great. It's going to be $50,000 each. And we're like, oh, we, we, you know, we're maybe a little more sensible in this. Like, okay, okay, okay. Maybe it's not going to be us, all right? But you know that You're there's going to be... someone paying 50 grand to be in the next yeah. Star Wars movie, for You sure. know someone's going to do it. Oh, yeah. That's, that is sold. <laughs> like, instant sold. So you have things like this you could do now. These franchises, you could do this now. And it's, it's like the barrier to this, what's keeping them from this, is just really the, the thinking. Because the tech exists. The mechanisms exist. People can communicate with each other. It's like the bureaucracy of the thinking. And I mean, I'm not saying we shouldn't have bureaucracies or we shouldn't have these systems in place. I'm saying this is what happens when you have systems in place. This is the, 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 uh, the consequence of these systems, that we can't do this. C could you raise, you know, uh, like you know, they're doing like the next Star Wars. Like, I mean, it's all in the can. Let's say it's not. Like the J.J. Abrams Star Wars one that's coming out in like December, right? So it's all in the can, but let's say it's not. So then you go like, all right, you you like open up this like Kickstarter and you sold like these nodes into it. You're this, you're this, you're this, you're this, you're this. Man, it'd be it'd be a feeding frenzy. It'd Absolutely. Be insane. And it'd be so fascinating. What are you experimenting with today? What is catching your attention right now that, that you're playing around with, tinkering with an idea of what could be coming next? Um, well, definitely the thing we're looking at now is the effectiveness and the details of the user voting monetization system. So that one is is very interesting to me. So one um, for example, in artificial right now, we have a we have a system where it's uncapped, but you have to do it like ten bits at a time, meaning that you have to like it's like a dime each time. So let's say you wanted to pump in fifty votes, you have to like change, 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 change for fifty times, because we wanted to see that habit of you like, like oh this person is doing it versus saying, you know what, I'm just gonna throw down five bucks and here's fifty votes or whatever it is, okay, right? We wanted to see that habit. So right now we're playing with that the the, the kind of the nuance in that area, the. Format and live, interactivity and live thing, and, and building in consequences to users, super fascinating to me. I guess my whole thing right now is, as, as a, an overall thesis, <laughs> right, is building in participation from users into uh, IP. I want the users to be involved. And people, like creators, you know, some some creators, they're just like, they're, they think it's bonkers. They're like, you're insane. Like, isn't that scary? It's your show. I'm like, yeah, it's my show, but I'm still controlling it. But you're not, you're, you're just in control. I'm like, I'm ceding some control and I accept whatever the result it is. I don't, I accept you, you being hugged and I accept you being punched. And I accept that the audience will have the responsibility to do this. That's, that's me as a creator. I go, I'll write both endings and, and whatever it is, what is it? That's fine to me. So, I look at that and embracing that chaos of the audience kind of participating in the story as kind of my work, my like life work right now. And all those things layered, layered into things like the monetization system, and like voting system and integrations and whatever it is. So, and I think that's the key to this next level of user content monetization we're talking about in video series where the audience can then, you know, you, you, get, you get that kind of whale system where 2% of the audience is paying for like 90% of the revenue Versus having, you know, in, with, with like Game of Thrones where it's all equal, which just makes no sense to me. What's coming next? If you had to make three predictions for the future of the media and entertainment space, what would they be? The future of media. Oh. Big question. Yeah. Three predictions? Mm -hmm. All right. Is this something you ask all the, all the guests? Uh, yeah, most people. Okay. Dang, I should have Take prepared. your time. <laughs> I do think interactivity is going to work. 
okay, I'm, I'm, I'm not saying choose your adventure is going to work. I'm going to say interactivity is going to work because we started to figure out monetization. And we know that economics drives everything. So I'm very confident about that, right? That interactivity will drive, okay? One of the things I'm trying to figure out is how to do a, a live sitcom. I mean, sitcom is already a three-camera, multi-cam shot in front of the studio audience. Why can't you do that live? And why can't you build interactivity into it? And then build a monetization on top of that. So now your sitcom is making more money. <laughs> like, so that's why I, I think about that. That's at the high level. And at the low level, Twitch, as an example, you know that Facebook just announced a currency. You know, like, like these things are clearly happening. Interactivity and monetization are coming together. And more interactivity means more money. And that's what's going to drive it. So we, we know that for sure. I think the ad model is dying and will not say die, but it will like just, they, I, who says this? Like the, the advertising industrial complex will just depress down. One, because of the democratization of Google and Facebook because they have the duopoly online and that ads are terrible and ads are falling uh, by the wayside of the freemium system as freemium drives everything. What, what music service do you use? Spotify. Do you pay for it? I do. Yeah, of course. And you're only you're only paying for one thing. Yeah. No ads. Yeah. Right. And it's worth every penny, right? That's right. Every penny. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So, so that's the perfect example. I was asked the other day because I'm I'm a YouTube premium subscriber. It's like, what? What? You actually watch the shows? I'm like, no. I hate the ads. Yeah. They're terrible. <laughs> like, and so, you can listen to music. Do you use it for music? No. Mm. I just I'm a Spotify subscriber. Wow. Too, okay. Right. I'm also an Amazon music. I'm a little overkill on this, but I have like three different devices. That's overkill, but. I, I'm a proud, like, two-year-plus-strong YouTube premium subscriber solely because I hate the ads. I can't stand them. Can't stand them. And this coming from someone who makes a lot of his living off of ad monetization. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm just like, I know that that's not the way. Sure. It's a terrible experience for the user. I'd rather uh, integrate in a product elegantly then serve an ad. Sure. Absolutely. In an interruptive, you know. Yeah. yeah like experience. I think that a, a, not, not all of Vanity does as well, but a lot of Vanity for Style Hall Maybelline did this really well. We integrated the, the, the makeup products in a show called Vanity, set in front of Vanity Mirror, by the way. Like makes absolute sense. So like we integrated that really well in that, really elegantly and, and smartly. And it just, it doesn't, the ad thing just doesn't work. Okay. Um, and so the third thing then is I think you're going to see this depression of the subscription model. What does that mean? I think you, 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 you can't have subscription models across everything, which is what we're doing right now. Everything's got a subscription model. Really? This is, this is the future of this? One, we're capping our whales. Okay? And two, you're going to expect to, like, everybody subscribe to everything. So I, I feel like there's going to be some kind of like, culling of systems. I don't know what exactly that means, but uh, I, I, it's unsustainable. Come on. <laughs> like, There's no way that every you know traditional media company can support its own SVOD OTT service. Yeah, 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 exactly. So right now, let's just let's let's run through let's, let's run through the video ones, mm -hmm. okay? So we know the obvious: Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, right? So those are the three that most people subscribe to. If any of all three, or two of the three, or one of the three, and everything. Okay. Now let's let's list a bunch of that, that old media is supporting right now. We have HBO, of course. You have Showtime, Stars, the classic, those things. Then you have things like like CBS All Access. You have DC Universe. You have ESPN, uh, ESPN, Disney Plus, Disney Plus coming, NBC Comcast. NBC Comcast coming, right? So you have that. Then you have these kind of like like tiered systems where like you have like Shutter, you have like Passion Flicks, you have Drama Fever and Crunchyroll, whether that's still going or not, all these things too. And th which which granted are super niche, so that they're, they're not direct competitors. They're they're niche in their own areas and horror and romance and 
whatever. All but stuff. they do very well. They do very well. Yeah. And then you have other things getting into the subscription things too, like Spotify, right? Which, which is subscription. But I'm getting saying video. Okay, so it was starting to video too. And so you look at all that and like, all right, sure. If you have niche, they all sustain. But will they all? Can they all? I don't know. You know, like something. It's very suspicious. It's very suspicious. And you have these things coming up like Quibi and Apple and, you know, who knows? I'm with you. Yeah. They can't all win. Uh, but those that do will be very successful. And, you know, those that don't are going to lose a lot of money trying. That's right. Yeah. What does the future hold for 96 Next? It's very focused in this innovation storytelling area. And whether that's more live interactive series or interactive series in other formats and everything, innovation is definitely something we're looking at very, very closely. And that's where, uh, that's where we're living. If you were starting a business in the digital media space today, what would you do? And not do the same one I'm doing sure, right yeah, now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the thought <laughs> is, I ask this question of everyone who comes on the show because so many entrepreneurs are listening in. Mm -hmm. And the idea is, you know, what's the white space out there? You know, you're experimenting with interactive content now. Are there other vehicles in which you'd like to test that? Are there other ideas that you have as an entrepreneur that you, you know, would be drawn towards if you were starting a new business from scratch, knowing everything you know, starting tomorrow? This is a little personal for me, but but I, I would play I really think the ecology green space is pretty wide open. Like I feel we're in this movement, maybe because I'm in the movement, but like I feel that there's a lot of <laughs> literal green green space there to to attack uh and, and, and succeed there. Um so I I think that area is very interesting to me. It's like it's like, you know, what like what crypto was, okay. I mean, crypto is still a good technology. It just crypto, it was just kind of everything. Crypto as a blank space word for everything it was kind of weird. And then, you, but then you had like these verticals like cannabis. For example, mm -hmm. like cannabis, I think is obviously because they're legalizing it across all the places and it's very effective and as a replacement in disrupting all these other industries. I think that's a very ripe space. Let me take an example of this. Like like hydroponic farming is an example of this, right? People who I mean, granted, I think you know we we have we live in small spaces, but like people who who live who have like kind of a lot of space and land, right? And what are they using for? Oh. Uh, a lawn in the back, right? And green space and green grass. It's like, okay, what if you use that for like productive things that actually just make you money, like hydroponic farming, you know? That can totally work. And, and I think there's ways to optimize in that system um, with new technology because technology can make it, make it precise where suddenly you're, not, you're, you're cutting down your, your farming sources from 100% water to 10% water, 10% of the water waste or something like that. It's like these are the areas I look at where, where um, you, you look at, you, you, you attack, and it's just kind of that old rule of thumb of like, can you do 80% of the quality with 50% of the price? You know, that's that classic disruptor POV mindset. Um, I think there's a lot to do there. I love it. Bernie Sue, Peabody, Emmy-winning uh, storyteller <laughs> is going to become a hydroponic farmer. <laughs> Amazing. No, but I, the reason I ask that question is because there's there's so much more to a person, especially as an entrepreneur, where you just can't turn off that part of your brain, right? You're constantly thinking about the food we eat or the way that, you know, transportation works or the, you know, the products that we buy and how we buy them. And so much of this, you're like, oh, I just see so many opportunities to improve this or tinker with this because yes. that's your mindset. Absolutely. Yeah. It's just the way, the way, I mean, I wish I would, if I had ultimate power, I'd be like, I, I went like, all right, I would build like this underground, like network of tunnels underneath LA and have all the Ubers drive to and from using that. And suddenly, just have like car services like all around, <laughs> uh, like not in the main streets. Amazing. Right? Why not just make them flying cars, and then you can do it on top of the existing infrastructure? Well, I figured then you have to figure out you have to turn all the cars in the flying versus just growing, keeping all the cars as they are and having mm, them all in the that's ground. That's true. All right. You know. Anyway, 
That's semantics. for part two of the podcast. Semantics. Yeah, All right. Yeah. <laughs> well, Bernie, where can people find out more about you and more about 96 Next? So 96 Next is a website that's very, very sparse by design. We purposely make it very, very simple. But Artificial Next, uh, Artificial and NEXT.com is where you can find everything about Artificial. Uh, the show is on Twitch. Same uh, username, Artificial Next. You can find me, uh, Bernie Sue, B-E-R-N-I-E-S-U, across all the platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. Um, but that's where you can talk to me, and I'm happy to answer any questions. Very cool. Well, I encourage everyone out there to tune in, check out Artificial, engage with the story, participate, you know, vote with your with your wallet to see what's going to happen. <laughs> or don't vote with your or wallet. Or don't. You just, know, just vote. Along. Yeah, just vote. I mean, <laughs> you know, express yourself and, and experiment with this new form of storytelling. And a big thank you, Bernie, to you for, uh, for opening up your home and making some time to talk about your experience as an innovator, as a disruptor in media and entertainment and what the future holds. It's a blast. Thank you for having me, James. This is awesome. Thanks for tuning in. I'm James Creech, and this has been another edition of All Things Video. If you like what you hear, we hope you'll share and subscribe for new episodes. See you next time.